Now, I stopped writing by hand the moment it was possible. I was the first person in my graduate program who was allowed to take the preliminary exams on the computer because no one wanted to read my handwriting. I can't even go out to the signature. By the time I'm like halfway through my name, I'm like, whatever, it's just a scroll. I think you're putting an X. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Basically, I'm back to Ellis Island. You know? Yeah. <laughs> hey, listeners, it's Eliza. Today, Colin and I talked to Dr. Elliot Borenstein, who's a professor of Russian and Slavic studies at New York University. We came in planning on talking about Marvel Comics since Dr. Borenstein recently published a book on Marvel Comics in the 70s, but <laughs> happily enough ended up talking about Harry Potter, Russian Orthodoxy, and fan fiction. So, unexpected, but it was a great conversation. Hope y'all enjoy. It's not a typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, Eastern European, and Eurasian Studies, and the William P. Clement Center for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin. Oh, wait, we are recording? We've, we've got so much good content already. You do? Yeah. I think we're kind of done. Who's this? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a hangout show. It is. It's a chat show. We try to go for the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. A chit chat. Boy, let me tell you, Johnny. I just flew in from New York, and boy, am I on the sky. Except they took a What's the deal with ACs? <laughs> what is the deal with ACs? What is all the fuss? What is the deal? Is that a real question? Well, why not? <laughs> you know, I went to a, I went to this like spin class this morning with one of our other hosts, and they asked, well, they were like, what, "What are you doing in town?" And I said, "Oh, we're here for a conference of a Slavic etc. etc. studies." And I didn't know how else to describe it, so I said, "Normally, it's a bunch of people that would talk about Russia, except this year we are studiously not." No, but my favorite thing about ACS is just going back to when it was when it was triple S. It used to be the American Association for the Advancement of Slavic Studies, and it was changed because of Eurasia, East Asia, and all that. And there's a whole debate about changing, and I'm thinking, why are you debating? We have a chance not to be ass. Um, <laughs> you know, we were, um, and you, you'd call the hotels, like, you, we're the, you were the groups again, yeah, I'm with the Slavic conference, they'd chuckle and say, oh, yes. So, um, <laughs> so really, the heightened sensibilities about about national identity and inclusion helped our name greatly. But I still have to count how many E's to write when I'm... Because every organization does it different. Some have just Slavic, East European, some say it's for Slavic, Eastern, and Eurasian, European and Eurasian studies. It's, it's a nightmare. Well, my own department, it's a, kind of, it's a problem with our name. When, right before I got there in the early 90s, they changed from Slavic languages and literature to Russian and Slavic studies because it was really just Russian with like one Czech course. And then I was doing Central European Lit. And so we liked it being Russian and Slavic because we felt like it wasn't over-promising as much as Slavic languages and literature because really we were just doing Russia. And now, now it's uncomfortable because the feeling is we should be more inclusive. But then I feel like if we change our name, we're back to over-promising because really what we've got is mostly Russian. Well, well we were thinking about changing the name of the department to Greater Sokovian. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah. After, yes, you have some accords. That would be very good. Yeah. Yeah, all of a sudden, Marvel's fake um, fake countries come in handy. They did, and we were looking that up actually because we uh, we were thinking about what to what to bring up yeah. with you when we. Well, I was thinking oh, yes, about yes. the new Craven movie that's coming out actually, yeah. and just like kind of the general. I know you wrote this book recently, right, yeah. about Marvel comics in the seventies, and then I was thinking about the entire kind of Cold War era and like the, the specter of the yeah, swab, you yeah. Know? And the way that it's, it's like almost kind of camp. It is. But the thing with Craven, though, if you want to go into Craven, he's invented in the 60s and he's not, I mean, I, I didn't even know if his last name is given as Kravinoff. Yeah. Um, he's just Craven the Hunter. And he isn't only, he's only really identified with Russia in this amazing story in the 1980s, which ends with his suicide. 
And then it's all about, you know, the old country and what happened to my country and blah, blah, blah. And, and also lots of Dostoevsky all through it because um, J.M. de Matisse, who wrote it, was used just, like half his characters have names like Karamazov and Isn't stuff like that. Isn't there actually a Smirdyakov in... Yes, yes. yes. In fact, his, his half-brother, the chameleon, suddenly got named Smirdyakov. Um, and that was all the 80s. So that actually isn't really... That isn't really Cold War stuff so much as it is sort of a fascination with Russia. I mean, there's a lot of Cold War stuff, but but not that mm-hmm. by that point. And also, it's the same thing with popular culture. I mean, I think people tend to, when they think about Cold War and the popular culture, they, they just say stuff at the top of their heads. It's all about, you know, hating Soviet Union and all that. But really, if you look at mass culture from the 60s on, it starts to turn from battling the commies, which Marvel was really into initially, <laughs> to... We're all kind of brothers, right? Um, it's like Star Trek and the Klingons, that all of these Russian stand-ins, Hollywood and the media industry starts to, doesn't, they don't go away from stereotypes, but they do start to um, try to represent um, a possibility of a rapprochement. So by the 80s, the uh, Cold War stuff is, it's still there, but it's not um, as intense. It's, it's dumb. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, every time they do something in Russia or China, it's, it's terrible, but it's less jingoistic. So if Craven's not, if Craven's more 80s, then what would you say like truly Cold War era is? I mean, I think that's just a misunderstanding oh, on oh. my part. Oh, no. In, in, the, in the comics, I mean, there's the ones like the Yellow Claw, who is basically Fu Manchu, um, and he's mm. the, the Yellow Peril. That's kind of Cold War. But no, I mean, Black Widow, um, all these stories right. of spies, right? And the Hulk, um, Bruce Banner's experiment is actually initially sabotaged by a Soviet agent, and Ant-Man's wife is killed by um, Hungarian communists. All this stuff is there. And Iron Man, initially, he has his accident, but he has his um, near death with the shrapnel in his heart in Vietnam, and they just keep moving it. Um, that's the great thing with comic book time, because it no longer makes sense for it to be Vietnam. So then they change it to Korea, to the Gulf, and now they've done this kind of brilliant, awful thing, which is, they decades ago, they made up a South Asian country called Sian Kong, I think, and um, they barely used it. Now they've just moved everything that was Vietnam-related to Sian Kong. Which, so we had a war there. It's somewhere in South Asia, this magic, Southeast Asia, it's magic, magical country. Marvel had a war and anyone who had a war origin is there. And now it doesn't matter when it happened. And I think it's kind of a, it's a great inadvertent indictment of American policy. It's just well, some foreign adventure somewhere. It doesn't really matter when there's always going to be some point when we're pointlessly involved in invading someone else's country. (laughs) I'm trying to think of if I've seen anything where this is used. I remember there's one episode of the, the new Captain America show. It felt like a like a fever dream Singapore Shanghai. Oh, that's Madripoor. Madripoor. That's okay. the, that's the fake Singapore. Okay. <laughs> they always have to have a fake yes. something. Madripoor. Right? That was invented for uh, Wolverine okay. um, in the eighties. I have so much useless trivia in my head. Yes. No, that's great content for the podcast. Oh, yeah. Sure, sure. Finally, finally, it's useful for something that entertaining five-year-old boys. <laughs> oh, Pax is happening in the building next door. Ah, uh, there you go. <laughs> so yeah, Madripoor is this sort of criminal country. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess if we're talking about the criminal countries, I asked this question earlier. Why is Eastern Central Europe's imagined country Sokovia? Why is our regions like Wakanda? Sokovia. And they created that in like 14, right? Sokovia, Sokovia, actually, there's something in the comics. I think there was a name that was sort of like Sokovia, but a little off from it. So I think it might actually have been invented for the movie. But what, I mean, part of it is about needing a place for for Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch to be from. And part of it is just needing a generic East European country. And, you know, East Europeans have been very, and, and Russians have just been very useful villains because stereotyping them doesn't come off as racist. 
they're safer. And I think that's one of the reasons that, that we go with them. Not necessarily because of any particular animosity, or recently maybe, but in general, but mostly because it's this other that we can project stuff off onto without feeling really bad about it. So, you know, characters like the Yellow Claw are much harder to redeem. And that's kind of the same thing. I mean, there's other characters in those storylines in the movies that we'll see, right? Like the kind of like quintessential little Nazi egghead guy. Yeah. 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 Which, you know, you know, nobody's going to be like, please don't yeah. do that accent. Yeah. We, we don't make, don't, don't portray Nazis in a bad light. Yeah. I, I hope we're still there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Tomorrow, Hydra will stand master of the world. Born to victory on the wings of the Valkyrie. Our enemies' weapons will be powerless against us. If they shoot down one plane, hundreds more will rain fire upon them. I feel safer already. I've been thinking about the Avengers as this sort of like American international neoliberal policing force and then how you have Hydra kind of behind literally anything that is opposed to the U.S. interests. I don't know where to go with that. I just have that thought in my head. Well, it's a whole secret society thing, right? And in comics, they've done so many, so many times where Hydra turns out to be behind us, right? And they did that in the movies very, okay. very well. Um, but Hydra, like Hydra was another way of, I don't know if they were initially, yeah, I think they were initially supposed to be sort of post-Nazi. Mm. Um, and so this was a way of like keeping the fight against Nazis alive because they're really good villains. Um, and so, yeah, and it also, it, it, so that also was helpful because then you get all these spy stories about Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. and all that. And it's not about the Soviet Union. And I, I actually think that's a plus because Frankly, almost every time these stories take place in a real country I know about, I just sort of want to hit my head against the wall because they're getting it wrong. So rather than get it wrong, just make up something that's a stand-in um, and you're just in, in much, much better shape. So there's wonderful science fiction and fantasy that takes place in sort of quasi-China, right? Or quasi-Africa, um, all these things. I read The Telling by Ursula Le Guin recently. Oh my, oh my gosh. No, precisely. I was reading it like, wow, it's so... I mean, it's it's like a clear parallel, but at the same time, but at the same time, you don't have to you don't have to worry about getting it wrong. Yeah, you can still offend. Yeah. Um, you can definitely still offend. Like people, like I, my my niece um, wrote this wonderful article about um, the Ferengi in Star Trek as space Jews, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you can still be offended by these stereotypical things, but they're not. But it's not like actually like here are the Jews in space, right? So I, I think it's usually a better bet unless you're really invested in historical fiction, which is a genre I don't enjoy. You're uh, you're better off making something up. My, so my mother-in-law loves uh, historical fiction and novels that take place in other countries, and she'll say to me, "Oh, I learned so much from this book." And I'll say, "That's exactly what I don't want to do. <laughs> I don't want to come away from a novel set in Japan feeling like I've learned something written by someone who's not Japanese, feeling like I've learned something about Japan because I don't trust it. Um, so I'd rather have it in fake Japan, um, and then I don't have to worry if my knowledge is is real. Like I, I at some point I, I posted on Facebook that I realized like I know so much more." about the Klingon Empire than I do about Portugal, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which is crazy. It is absolutely crazy, but I know this much about Portugal, but I could go on and on about the Klingon Empire. And um, I'm not sure how pathological that is, but I think that it's probably true for a lot of us, in, at least in the fandom world. I think I know more about the fall of Gondolin than I know about the end of the Qing Empire. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> absolutely. And then if you get it wrong, I mean, only some other nerds can do it. Right. Not... There's enough, like, discord within the Dune fandom as it is, so I just oh, oh, yes. pipe down on my, my drug of choice. <laughs> Your spice of choice. Yeah. <laughs> Your spice the spice is life, so, yes. That, that movie got delayed, I think. Yeah, part two. I've never actually read the books. Oh, it's fascinating. I, I watched oh, the originals are. Yeah. Oh, the first six are. <laughs> I mean, bad fascinating by the mm. end, because there's oh, like yeah. a... 
three and a half thousand year time jump and a giant worm emperor. Oh, yeah. and then and then clones of everybody. Yeah, and then lots of like sex magic. Yeah, and Jews in space, also yeah. Jews in space. That was and, and not done very well again. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, actually, I was thinking, I was reading it and rereading it, and then I watched. David Lynch's Dune. Which is which hilarious. Is inc- I love it. Yeah. I, unironically and ironically at the same time. Yeah. I love that movie. It's incredible. It's Baroque and the Matrix, mm-hmm. just back and forth. And I was watching it and thinking about the Baron and thinking about when he was writing it and how, like, I don't know. I, I love Dune, but on second read, I was kind of like, he, the Baron is a ham-fisted caricature of so many things in the world when Frank Herbert was writing it. Because, like, what? He's like, oh, he has a, he has, his name's Vladimir. Oh, and he's gay. And he's kind of, and kind of pedophilic. And, and he's fat. That's, That's right. Important. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, it's, it's, and so much, and this is doing so much with um, Arab and Muslim cultures, but again, mm. not, not having to get it right either. Yeah. You know, um, and the Fremen being, you know, literally the force that are provided to be taught and then mobilized. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he, and he likes, he, he willfully combines the Zen Sunni. And then in the prequels, there's the Budo Islamic or is it, Budo? yeah, something like that. I haven't Budo, read the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Brian ones. <laughs> There's an Algerian independence war, I think, thing going on with the Fremen. Oh, possibly. Is there? Except, they, but it's more desert, you know. I'm... There is, but there's a phrase. There's a specific phrase the Fremen say that is just borrowed from the Algerian oh, independence war. It doesn't matter. I mean, it does. So it's funny. At the beginning, you said something about how at ACES, where normally you'd say it's a place where people are talking about Russia, and now we're trying not to talk about Russia. I feel like we're trying not to talk about Russia. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Well, it's also Lawrence of Arabia. That's the other thing. Lawrence of Arabia, definitely, which is a yeah, a bad beginning. No. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, um, what is it, Major Lawrence, that attracts you personally to the desert? It's clean. Oh, I know something that's both pop culture and Russia I could talk about. Oh, hey. One of the books I have that's coming out next year is on um, Harry Potter and Russia. Oh. oh. There you go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Durmstrang. Yeah. Uh, the, well, not Russian, but the Hungarian. Yeah, Hungarian. yeah. Right. So the book is it's coming out from Bloomsbury. It's called Harry Potter and the Politics of Enchantment Under Putin. Um, and so I... I don't talk so much about the whole, like those tiny, tiny slivers of things that Russians talk about. Like, oh, we've got the Durham string. I, I, I talk, I talk about the phenomenon of talking about it. But what for me is really interesting is the reception over there and the immediate controversy, thanks to a lot of people affiliated with the Russian Orthodox Church. On the one hand, that this is satanic. And on the other, the moment that this comes into the culture is still a moment when intellectuals and semi-intellectuals, whatever you want to call them, educated people are still trying to wrap their heads around a book market that, and in particular, that their, their children are going to read different books from ones they read as children because for decades, basically, I mean, you had new children's books, but everybody read the same books. You know, everybody read, you know, the, the version of Wizard of Oz, everybody read Jack London, everybody read these things. And in a non-market economy and in the way the Soviet Union was set up, there wasn't seemed to, there didn't seem to be a need to come up with new children's stuff every generation. I think of it, why would it? The children are a disposable audience. You can just use the same stuff. But in a capitalist world, you always have to come up with new children's stuff. So just the sheer fact of the children reading these things that are different. And then since you didn't read it when you were a kid, oh my God, this is crap, right? And because that's, that's a lot of it, right? And then this phenomenon of, you know, this huge multimedia project, because the books start to appear in Russian not long before the films, that there's all this stuff, oh, it's just marketing. This is all crap. They're trying to brainwash us. And then you get all of these amazing um, 
knockoffs and parodies, and then the entire 15 novel series about Tanya Grother, this girl who's a, in the first book, Tanya Grother, uh, I think it's Volshebny or Magic Contrabas. She's an orphan. She has a magic base, and she goes off to a different sort of school. And there's, a, there's an evil, the villain is this woman called Chumad del Tort. And it's not great, but it's not horrible. And um, children, now there's a generation of Russian speakers who've grown up reading those as well as reading reading Harry Potter. And there was a lawsuit in the Netherlands to prevent translation. And then there's just all these really kind of polemical, awful parodies. And then there was this book called Dieti Proti Volshebnikov, Kids versus Wizards, um, supposedly written by this Greek guy who no one's ever heard of. It's clearly not Greek. Clearly, these Russians who did it, and this whole, but this whole fiction of it being this a Greek, this novel by this guy Nikos, I think Nikos Zervas, who doesn't exist, and it takes place in the largely in the Suvorov Academy, which is a real place, a military academy. And the thing is that Harry Potter and the, all of these characters are real, more or less, and they have a school of magic in Scotland, and they they are slowly infiltrating the entire world and corrupting everybody. But the one place they haven't been able to corrupt is Russia. Because Russia is protected by what they call the Russian shield. And you know what the Russian shield is? Orthodox Church. Orthodox Church, exactly, yes. So um, they send their sort of version of Harry Potter, an, a boy named Leo, not Lev, Leo. They, that's all that whole Russian thing that thinks every Lev becomes Leo. Leo, um, I can't remember, some very Jewish sounding last name. And he's come, he's come back, he's a Russian orphan who studied magic. He's come back and he's propagandizing magic, and they basically are stealing orphans to take to Scotland to um, corrupt them so that we can get behind the Russian Russian shield. So the Suvorov Academy sends teenagers, including this boy who's nicknamed Ivan Sarevich, um, after a long monologue about how masturbation is evil, they're sent to first to Kosovo for some reason, and then to um, rescue these children from the evil wizards who turn out to be run by Harry Potter, but Harry Potter isn't actually Harry Potter. Harry Potter is Hermione Granger's transgender sibling. I want to need to pause. And then there's a, a movie. There's a movie? <laughs> Wait, that's incredible. Oh, yeah, it's when so you bad. Started, when you started, I was going to say, okay, well, why do they want to pretend it's a Greek guy? But now I feel, you know, having somebody else. Having somebody else that praise yeah. Russia and yeah. all of that. Yeah, and yeah. civil orthodoxy. And, yeah. yeah. And also the Greek author's kids, I suppose, the only I want to. That is something that I kind of, yeah, yeah. the kind of like telling on yourself by yeah. blaming someone but, else. Yeah, for. terrible, terrible novel. <laughs> really like hyped up a lot, but I don't think it got a lot of reading. But what did you want? <laughs> No, I'm, I'm shocked. This is yes. amazing. <laughs> Colin just needed a breath. <laughs> and so then there's an animated film. Between the book and the animated film, there's a lot of coverage, including an expose article, which basically comes comes to the conclusion that there's no Nikos Zervas, and this is all fake. But then all of these conservative groups come together to finance this animated version of it. And it's released in theater initially and hyped across the country. And it is widely considered one of the worst movies ever made in Russia. Like, if you look at lists, you know, it, it's a movie that it's on YouTube and with English subtitles. People love to track it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So not only does it have this whole ridiculous storyline, though it takes out these explicit Harry Potter stuff because of lawsuits, it doesn't include the monologue on masturbation, um, which is a real loss. Um, but, <laughs> but what it does do is really strangely, given that it was well-financed and had some really good animators in it, it's technically god-awful because it goes back and forth between the animation and scenes of like real human beings, I think, um, actors, maybe, who are supposed to be Russian soldiers and they're talking with each other and telling the story. But it's sort of like 
it's so wooden and so bad every time they do that. And then when they go to the animation, the animation looks like kind of cheap video game animation. By the standards of the year it came out, still like cheap video game animation. So it's so, so unspeakably, wonderfully bad. So it was lots of fun to write about. Incredible. Wait, so what year was this written and So set? it was written, I think, I should know this, I think around 2010, and then the film came out, I think, around 2016. Okay. So do they talk about contemporary Russian politics, like, at all? Is that even, like, okay? They don't need to. They, mean, don't, yeah, they don't need true. to, but, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the book about the uh, wars of Yugoslav succession. I mean, that's why they go to Kosovo. And that is about Russia, because yeah. for ever since the wars broke out in Yugoslavia, one, the coverage of it was always about those poor Serbs and the evil Muslims and Croats, um, sort of the inverse of our kind of oversimplistic coverage, but really awful stuff. But also, it became very clear, and I, I read about some people at three different places, that the political classes were looking at Yugoslavia as a dress rehearsal for Russia. Think about it. It's a multinational country that breaks down. The, US, the West takes a certain side in it, right? And that this, So they saw it as a Western conspiracy to tear this country apart, and maybe once they've figure out how to do that, they will do it in Russia. And in fact, so many of the scripts from the wars of Yugoslavia, of the Yugoslav succession, have been deployed in Ukraine. So the whole false flag stuff was a big part of it back in back then. And the idea that the in the Yugoslav wars, so go back to World War II, uh, Croatia was a, a fascist movement, right, that was running the country, and there were concentration camps. So there are plenty of reasons for Serbs to have historical grievance about this. And when Croatia started to reawaken as a nation, it, it returned to the symbols used by the fascist government. Not great. Similar thing goes on in Ukraine. And in each case, then, the Serbs are fighting the Nazis and the Russians are fighting the Nazis. So going to Kosovo, this is a huge digression, but going to Kosovo for, the, for this book and for the film is an indirect way to comment on things related to Russia and, and to um, how much the West hates Russia and wants to destroy it. Did you not write a whole book about how much oh, yes. Russia says? That, yeah. Oh, yeah, at least one. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah. I did. So, right. That is true. So then also, in the Harry Potter, so there's fan fiction. And the fan fiction, I've read a fair amount of fan fiction, but then trying to read. So then I'm reading all this Russian language, going through Russian language Harry Potter fan fiction, which is huge and fascinating because on the one hand, there's YouTube stuff, like YouTube parodies, which can be very funny, but they're kind of frat bro stuff with lots of homophobic humor and all that. And then in the fan fiction, it's a lot more like archive of our own with the kind of queer friendly, all this great, so like, you know, warm hugging, right? And content warnings and, and, and labeling and all that. And so then I'm reading all the slash and I'm thinking, okay, this is what I studied Russian for, to read Harry, Harry Draco slash porn. And at some point, and I made this discovery at some point doing a Harry Draco slash porn that like somewhere on the third hand job, that um, this was a translation. It's like, oh my God, I spent all this time reading a Russian translation of, 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 um, <laughs> of Harry Potter um, erotic fan fiction when I could have just been reading the original, which I did find. So my, my results studying the fan fiction was, one, there was a scholar out there who sadly died a few years ago who'd already written great stuff about it so I could refer to her work. And two, the most, one of the most astonishing things about the Russian fan fiction world, for Harry Potter at least, is how not different it is from the Western fanfiction world. And that lack of difference, it creates a space that's actually kind of wonderful. These are dark times, there is no denying. Our world has perhaps faced no greater threat than it does today. But I say this to our citizens. We, ever your servants, 
will continue to defend your liberty and repel the forces that seek to take it from you. Your ministry remains strong. Oh, and then there was this whole thing about using Harry Potter as metaphors for things. And I'm, I've been fascinated in my work in the past, past decade and thinking about how we can not just use the tool, our analytic tools to analyze popular culture, but how we can use popular culture to analyze other things because these frameworks really live for us, right? And we know, everybody knows who Darth Vader is, everybody knows who Spider-Man is. And so Harry Potter, um, there's this whole weird thing with the politicization of Harry Potter in Russia, not just like it's a political, but about Russian politics. So when the second Harry Potter movie comes out, um, there's all this stuff about how Dobby looks like Putin. Stupid elf! You could have killed me! Dobby never meant to kill. Dobby only meant to maim or seriously injure. Brilliant. And he kind of does. But um, so people are outraged, you know. But of course, it seems so unlikely that this is on purpose. The time frame, like, Dobby was probably designed before it, people in the West really knew who Putin was. So, but then there's a whole thing about Putin never being willing to use Navalny's name. You know, that blogger, that person. So, so it's like Voldemort. So then there's the question of who's Voldemort and who's Harry Potter. Because then, as Putin gets more and more Botox, and you know, he still has a nose and all that, there are more and more memes that make him look like Voldemort. And when, and so you get, sometimes you get, he's Voldemort and Navalny is Harry Potter, but then when the, this, the full-scale war breaks out in Ukraine, there's this mural somewhere in Europe that has this painting that spawned all these memes, which draw, shows Zelensky with a, a scar and it says Harry Potter and Putin is Voldemort. And then there are these like online animations um, that basically do the same thing. And um, all, there's all of this stuff, which is really kind of great. And then the last big internet phenomenon that I look at at the end is during COVID, at some point, which one was it? The, uh, the lead singer and guitarist of, of Spleen, writes a song, you know about this? Writes a song called uh, Pass this along to Harry Potter if you happen to see him. And it's a song, um, very simple melody, where it's a letter to Harry Potter saying, hi Harry, you know, I know you're kind of busy over there in England, but if you could find the time to come over here and help us, things really suck. And it was about COVID, but if you look at the comments over the years, people then start to feel like it's about like Russia now and Ukraine. And But after he does this, then Makarevich, from uh, Machine of Remini, the time machine, he posts his own response. Um, it's a, an answer to um, Vasiliev, the, right, the guy from Harry Potter, and saying, no, sorry, you gotta work this out yourself. And it was a whole other song. But then on the on YouTube, you get I found a couple dozen different versions of the original Spleen song, where it's like, give this to, so some of it's like, give this to Fist Fantasy because like Carl said on the roof. Um, some of it's a Ukrainian answer to the, the, the all of these different ones. And they're, they're fascinating and hilarious. They, they all tend to use the same tune. You just put different words to it. But you have this whole productive phenomenon um, using this Harry Potter discourse that was really fun to look at. Crossovers? I, oh yes, uh, there are plenty with, of crossovers. With who? With, with everybody. Well, sure. That's the thing. It's just like it's just like Western <laughs> yeah. fan fiction. No, it's just so like like Super Hulock.
Super Who Lock yeah. for the Uninitiated. Uninitiated is fan fiction involving supernatural Doctor Who and... Oh, BBC Sherlock. Sherlock, thank you, of course, yes. Um, from when I, I was at a loss for the, yes, for the lock. That takes me right back to middle school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, so there's plenty of crossovers. And then there's all these other others. And I think then all these attempts not to like do parodies of Harry Potter, but novels that are about like magic schools. And of course, Rowling didn't invent that. Um, and including a, a very Russian Orthodox trilogy by Yulia Vaznesenskaya, who was this very well-known dissident who wrote this one, two great novels in the 80s, The Woman's Decameron and The, the Star Chernobyl, before completely dedicating herself to Orthodoxy and fiction and fantasy. And the, the angels talking, and it's, it's really bad. It's better written. But it, it does, so there's a, um, a deacon, um, is it Kurayev, is that his name? Is it, uh, uh, I'm joking. I mean, he's a priest, an archbishop. Um, who is liberal and wrote an entire book defending Harry Potter in response to this horrible book that I'm attacking Harry Potter. And when people would say it's anti-Christian, he'd say, well, there isn't anything about Christianity in Harry The seventh book hadn't come out. But more to the point, what do you want? Do you really, do you guys really want fantasy stories where Christ is in there? Or where that involve Russian Orthodoxy? Doesn't that actually kind of demean it? And so in Vaznesienska's books, these angels are like coming to Moscow, talking about these new Russians and, oh, they don't even... They don't even pray. They have, and it's jarring and weird and um, way too sincere, but also just I find, I, I find it very hard to imagine how you can pull that off, like with a living belief system that you're respecting to make fantasy about it. It's like, it's so, you know, the Narnia books are very Christian, but, but they don't, I mean, until, until the lion becomes Jesus at the end, and they don't even say that, right? You don't have to follow one-to-one. So that's, like, that's allegorical. But when it's like, you know, here we are, the angels wishing everybody would turn to Christ, that's kind of dubious as fantasy. But anyway, that's some other stuff that was there. Do you know, have you ever seen the, um, talking about Western perceptions of like putting Russian beliefs into, into media, the way that the Russian Empire Kislev and the Warhammer oh, franchise? Oh, I've heard about it, yeah. Yeah. I, my, my knowledge of gaming is, is, is fairly indirect because I'm always afraid of liking it too much. So I read about it. Um, so I don't, I don't game. Um, but I, oh, I had to look at a lot about gaming for, um, for the Harry Potter book. It's true a bit. Or no, 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 I'm sorry. That was for the Harry Potter book. So I have three books coming out next year and I kind of get them mixed up. But this was for, um, I think, I think I talked about gaming for this book coming out called Unstuck in Time um, on the post-Soviet Uncanny, where I'm talking largely about time travel as a way of understanding the post-Soviet experience including stories and movements about how, you know, the Soviet Union never really ended. It's really still with us. There's a whole group of pensioners who won't pay their bills because the Russian Federation isn't legitimate. Or these time travels. There's a subgenre of Russian science fiction called Papadance. It means Papadanyets is literally someone who just ends up somewhere. And it's basically the premise of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court or Kindred. Someone, for no apparent reason, ends up in another time or place. That's been done that's fine and there are plenty of examples of that in, in anglo-american science fiction but not as recognized as a subgenre. and in in the russophone world it is the fastest growing largest segment of um, science fiction there's an an online encyclopedia of papadansi that is updated every year thousands of entries and it's basically a lot like fan fiction but it gets public a lot of it does get published and by, by publishers um i call it time crashers using an obscure episode of Doctor Who for the, for the um, name, because Papa Daniels is, I, you, you can, Papa's put machine is to, is to be in a car crash, so I feel like it kind of works that way. And a lot of it's about these people who, have, you know, they hit their head and they wake up and they're in World War II talking to Stalin. And there's crossover stuff too, sometimes Darth Vader's there too, but 
they go back in time and then they like try to relitigate, like help stop, stop something that's going to make World War II end differently or just, or help make it better or things like that in their films. And it's just fascinating that they just keep doing this. Um, and most of it's really horrible. My favorite is this uh, novel called Studienka Komsomolska Spartsmienka, which is a, a quote from Kafkaska Pienica, the Caucasian captive. Um, so student, a female student, Komsomol girl, athlete, but all female names. And it's about this pensioner who, 20 years from now, dies finally in the miserable Democratic Republic of Moscovy, which is abbreviated as Dirmo, shit. After like everybody he's loved has been killed by all these criminals and all that, he dies. And then he wakes up in the, as a baby, a baby girl named Natasha in 1960, but with his con- all his conscience with him, he determines that he's going to spend his life fixing the Soviet Union so it doesn't collapse. But he thinks of himself in the masculine, but Natasha's feminine, this whole like, fascinating transgender um, fantasy on the part of this man who's so aggressively homophobic, too. So there's a lot being worked out here, but because he's really enjoying being a girl. And it's so, it's also very much a Mary Sue thing. So should I explain Mary Sue? For the yeah. listeners, probably. So Mary Sue is a name, comes from one of the most notorious, considered notorious bad fan fictions, but it's actually meant to be a parody, where the writer comes up with a, someone who's a clear stand-in for herself, who is, is on the Enterprise and Star Trek, and everybody loves her, and she's so perfect, and she's the center of attention. So Mary Sue is an authorial projection who gets to do everything and everybody loves. So Natasha, he, and it's interesting talking about him, but thinks of himself as he, Natasha ends up you know, starring in his favorite movie and ends up like uh, uh, becoming like he's, he's this perfect Komsomol organizer and maneuvers himself so that where he is um, a, a champion archer so that he can go to the Moscow Olympics and or a champion shooter and he shoots Gorbachev, Brezhnev, it could not have been Yeltsin, but Chernyanka, um, and then is killed. He's like, oh, that's fine because he did it. He stopped the Soviet Union from ending by getting rid of these horrible people. 300 pages later. And then there's some sequels, but yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, wow. it's great stuff. Wait, there's sequels? Well, kind of, <laughs> kind of, because in the alternate, so the, the book um, includes the novel and then a couple short stories, and it seems like the alternate future that he creates has his kind of granddaughter or, or niece or something who then herself goes back in time and meets Hitler. Hmm. And Hitler's not really so bad after all, like we can kind of work with him and she and does this thing that happens in these books a lot, convinces Hitler and Stalin to make an alliance because the West is really the bad guys. And she ends up, this, the granddaughter who actually is cisgender, cisgender girl, ends up being adopted by Hitler as his heir. <laughs> and she runs the, um, the United Third Reich Soviet Union. Where is it supposed to go from there? Is oh, yes, I mean, yeah. It's, uh, but this book was published by Exmol. It was, it started as fan fiction, Exmol publishes it. Exmo publishes a whole lot of Padanzi. So, I mean, I couldn't read so much of this stuff because it's just, there's too much to go through and it's too terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, so just like with all my, my stuff, I have to like pick, try to figure out what could be a representative example or an interesting example and just mm-hmm. trust that it's okay yeah. <laughs> because they're just so horrible. Well, what are some of the ones that you've discarded that really stick in your mind? Well, they, they stick in mind for a bunch of, like, they're very evocative. Like there's, uh, the, I write about this stuff more in, I think, Soviet self-hatred um, in the Orc chapter. Tankisti Mordra, um, the, the tank drivers of Mordor. This tank from World War II ends up in Mordor. Because there's a whole Orc thing that I write about, about how the Orcs are actually Russians and good guys. But anyway, so there's the tank drivers of Mordor. I like that one. There's uh, one of the Darth Vader ones is kind of hilarious. I'm sorry, I want to go back to the premise of tank drivers of Mordor. <laughs> yeah. Is this, first off, just for my own benefit, which what, what tank do they get? Oh, I think it's an Abrams. They get an Abrams? Oh, yeah, so it's, it's an like, Abrams. What if the orcs had an Abrams? One does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates 
are guarded by more than just orcs. Get off the road! Quick! And I think that might be the one where there's a, where there's a troll who's modeled after Chubias and some evil witch who's modeled after Novodorskaya. It's really, really ugly. Oh, and then there are, so that's, but there's not just World War II. It's sort of a generational thing. If you're younger, then you have these kind of probably IT workers who imagine themselves going back to their childhood in the Brezhnev era. And they end up usually somehow magically going back there with a laptop that has all the information in the entire world in it. So they can do things like, you know, buy Apple stock or whatever. And um, <laughs> one of them actually releases a Beatles song before the Beatles does. So that's just total, it's, yeah. But then there were television shows that, um, that really did this. And, and the, two of my favorite examples, one is, so you know Life on Mars, the British show? So in Life on Mars, which came out 20 years ago, this British detective is shot, goes in, is in a coma, but he wakes up and he's in the 1980s. So he's a 1980s cop and trying to get back. And either this is an illusion because of his coma or he really has gone back in time. It's very vague with that for quite a while, but there's this sort of culture shock of being there in the 1980s. And it was a great show. It was adapted terribly for um, American television, but then adapted all around the world because the premises really works. And so Russia adapted it. But instead of Life on Mars, they called it um, Dark Side of the Moon because Pink Floyd, they figure Pink Floyd is more recognizable than Bowie. And, but here, the premise is actually so much more interesting because it takes place in 2012, right after the militia became the, the, the police. So right after this moment, the police reform. And the cop is shot, wakes up in, uh, he's in a coma, and he wakes up in his father's body. There's a lot of mental tra- time traffic. In his own father's body, they have to share the same first name, in 1980. And now he's a Soviet militia man. And that changes everything, except that the show doesn't have the courage to actually investigate like the ethical ramifications of the laws that he's enforcing here. But he has lots of advantages. He speaks English. No one else does. He knows the Pink Floyd records. And there are all these moments where like, you know, he runs into this little boy who's burning all the Pugachova records, and it's all the Pugachova's future husband, Kikorov. Or he, there's an argument with a, a, teenage, a tall teenage guy and his girlfriend, and the girlfriend says to him, you know, Pidisan Khodr. And Khodor here is not Hodor from Game of Thrones, it's Khodorkovsky. So he's seeing Khodorkovsky, young Khodorkovsky, his girlfriend's breaking up with him, and he's saying to Khodorkovsky, you know, yeah, it's okay. You're going to be okay. Mo- mostly okay. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, Khodorkovsky was still in prison. He meets Wysotsky. He, he, he's there for a filming of Carlson on the Roof. And there's the whole thriller stuff. It's not very good, but it's fascinating. And there's another involving Chernobyl. process of working with things that are not very good but fascinating how do you find operating in that space and like the academic sphere because that feels like the kind of thing it's sort of a sell i mean i feel like katie clark did this with with her soviet novel book everybody said she read these books and no one else had to but then all of a sudden everybody says writing books about socialist realism but i don't know i i guess i do enjoy being pretty much the only one out there it's liberating it's liberating also in that i feel like with a really good book i could wonder if if the analysis I'm doing on it is enough. And here I wonder if the analysis I'm doing on it is too much. So what I what I wanna be what I really want to get away from is the things that really annoy me when I read when I read stuff done about about American culture, particularly by people who are in American where they just assume everything is representative and everything is about the state and everything is about ideology just in pushing it forward. It's like, no, it can be more complicated than that. But 
The, the only part of it that I don't enjoy is I've got, I, I have less patience than I used to for reading really bad things. And so that's, I do, I do some skimming. But otherwise, otherwise it's kind of fun, I have to say. I just sort of fell into this. I'm kind of stuck there. I do write about some good things. But um, for the most part, I'm writing about crap. How did you find your way into it? So in the 1990s, so I was, I, when I was working, writing my dissertation in the early 90s, I, first I ran Wisconsin's exchange program at Moscow State, and then I ran the Fulbright program for the Russian Federation. I was writing my dissertation. I'm living then I was married to a Russian woman for a few years. And so I went back a lot and I was there. And I just, all this stuff was appearing, right? I mean, when I started studying Russian, there was no beach readings. Pick up. Look, all my friends were taking French and German. They could pick up some wonderful trashy novel and read it. And like, okay, I could read Sholokov. Then all of a sudden, pop crap starts picking up. And I, so I just started collecting everything and finding that I have to really stretch because one, like the big genres were detective fiction, which is not something I'm really interested in, but I got to appreciate some of that. And there's a fair amount of fantasy and science fiction. I didn't like it. So I just started collecting stuff and doing articles and people said, are you writing a book about this? And then I realized I was. And then I realized was, when I finished, it was about the 90s because I didn't know it was the 90s until the 90s were over. <laughs> and that became my niche. I think we've tied the bow on this interview that we did a little bit backwards, <laughs> finishing with, how did you get well, into well, this? Is, this is the, well, this is my whole thing is about time travel and time warps oh, and no, all that. Perfect. So yeah, it does yeah, work. We, we, ended we ended up at the origin story. Yeah. We, we worked it backwards. <laughs> this is good. This is like time zero. And I think I heard a potuit, so perhaps that's where we should call it. Thanks, Dr. Bornstein. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lots Sorry, of that. Sign, it's fine. But <laughs> no one gets it right. I'm okay. Slavic Conviction is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. And we'll no longer have that ongoing game of death. Oh but there was a claw machine? No, I literally had the last... Finally. <laughs> I used to subscribe to a Twitter feed called, um, Is Ed Asner Still Alive? <laughs> um, and I followed it and then it turned to Ed Asner's dead. <laughs> and then I left Twitter. <laughs> you left Twitter? I left Twitter. I can't stand it.